is Google making us stupid? That's the question Nicholas Carr asked in his 2008 article over at The Atlantic. And this article was so good, it was he actually expanded it into a book called The Shallows, where he unpacks what the internet is doing to our brains. He writes this, What the net seems to be doing is chipping away at my capacity for concentration and contemplation. My mind now expects to take in information the way that the net distributes it in a swiftly moving stream of particles. Once I was a scuba diver in a sea of words. Now I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet ski. Writing in concert with Nicholas Carr, Cal Newport in his best-selling book, Deep Work, explores how our inability to focus is hindering our ability to create meaningful, innovative, and valuable work. Here's how he defines deep work. He says, deep work is the ability to focus without distraction on a cognitively demanding task. It's a skill that allows us to quickly master complicated information and produce better results in less time. All of us have probably experienced that at some point where we felt like we were in the zone. You were doing deep work in that moment. And then all it takes is one email, one distraction to pull you up out of it. You could be working on a project at work or writing a blog or an article. It could be reading a book, making a budget, learning something new. Anything that requires your full attention, you do it best when you can get into this zone of deep work. This distraction-free concentration that allows our minds to focus and bring out our best thinking and therefore our very best work. Cal Newport in his research says that deep work is becoming increasingly rare as it's also becoming increasingly valuable, right? It's something that we really need. And that we've got notifications coming in on our desktops, our phones, social media. There seems like there's always something buzzing or pinging us, right? There's the expectation that we would respond to emails instantly. People are like, hey, I sent you an email today. You're like, I know, the day's not over yet. Give me a break, right? Or there's this desire not to be left out of workplace conversations. So you're, you're typing and you see something going on and you're going, man, I, I want to know what's going on over there. Deep work is near extinction and we never leave the shallows of constant distraction. Now, I find this whole genre of literature to be wildly fascinating and I couldn't help but think how this is having a profound effect um, not on just how we work and interact with information, but also on our relationship with God. See, if it's true that shallow focus and attention produces shallow work, and it's also true that deep focus and attention produces deep work, then it stands to reason that shallow focus and attention produces shallow relationships. And deep focus and deep attention produces deep relationships. Have we gathered our information about who God is like a scuba diver in the sea of God's word? spending time looking around, marveling at it? Or have we merely zipped along the surface like a guy on a jet ski, skimming the surface, never actually looking at the words themselves, but just relying on what others are saying as we pass by? Do we fight for distraction-free time where we can concentrate thinking deeply on who God is so that our knowledge of him can grow and our relationship with him can deepen? Is our relationship with God suffering due to a lack of focus and attention? Do we have a shallow relationship with God? 
I think that's an important question. It's the, it's the question we're going to deal with today. See, when we put our faith in God, like we looked at a couple weeks ago, when we've repented, believed, and turned to him with our whole being, we start a journey of faith. It may start in the shallows. Our understanding of him may be surface deep, but it can't stay there where knowledge is vague and puny and intimacy is foreign and faked. We have to grow in clarity and depth of who God is so that our relationship can take deep root. See, that's how all relationships work, don't they? They take intentionality and invested time. And the more you know someone, your capacity to love that person actually grows. So this morning, we want to focus our attention and think deeply about who God is as we continue in our series, We Believe. Each week, we're going to take a line from the Apostles' Creed and the scriptures that inform those lines and those doctrines that anchor them. And our hope is that we would grow and deepen in our understanding of who God is, what he's done, and how all of that impacts our daily life. And today in the Creed, we come to the words, God the Father Almighty. Now, each one of those words, God Almighty and Father tell us something profound about God. And if we're willing to focus in for the next few minutes and do some deep work, we are going to deepen our understanding of who God is. So this morning, we're going to ask three questions. Who is God? What is he like? And what can we expect? Who is God? What is he like? And what can we expect? So let's start with the first question in who is God? Now, when Christians say, we believe in God, or you say, I believe in God, we aren't talking about a philosophical idea. We're not speaking about some abstract higher being or power. For the Christian, when we use the word God, it is not an ambiguous term where you can just fill in the blanks with whatever you want. See, Christianity, Christianity is very distinctive and particular about who God is. Now, the reason for that is because God in his kindness has not left us to speculate or to figure him out or to fill in the blanks. We're not capable of doing that. So God has lovingly revealed himself to us through creation, through concrete acts of history, and most notably, God has revealed himself to us in Scripture. See, for the Christian, the Bible isn't an accessory to our faith, one of those things that you can just take or leave. It's actually the foundation of our faith. We have confidence in who God is and what he's done because God has spoken and he's preserved his word to us in the Holy Scriptures. So what do Christians believe about God? This is how the New City Catechism states it. We'll have the words on the screen. There are three persons and the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are the same in substance, equal in power, and glory. Now let me unpack what all of that means, and we'll also be looking at some scriptures as well. We believe that there is one God who has eternally, that means always, existed as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There are not three gods, there is only one God. But the divine being doesn't have just one corresponding person in that divine being. The divine being has three persons who are all equally and fully God. All right, you and I are human beings, right? There's something that means to be, what it means to be human that all of us share, but all of us have our individual personalities, right? So you exist with one human being and one, exactly one person that goes with that one being. Now, if you say, well, no, Pastor, I actually have multiple persons in my one being. 
Well, the DSM has a name for that disorder, right? It's called multiple personalities, okay? That's not what I'm talking about here. God is not like you and me. The divine being has three, exactly three and only three persons in his one being, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in this perfect community live with unity, diversity, and equality in their relationship. It's like unlike any group you've ever been a part of. So there's no infighting. There's no jockeying for power. There are no like side alliances where they try to team up on the other. There is complete and total harmony. Now, this unity that I talked about within the Godhead is not homogeny, which means this, like all the same. It's not uniformity. This is not groupthink. It's a unity that's driven by love, desire, and the same purpose. And God's unity is perfectly balanced out by his diversity. See, God's diversity never devolves into disorder because it's perfectly balanced by equality. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit aren't simply different names for God's when he's doing different things or feeling in a different mood. He doesn't have mood swings where sometimes he's Father, sometimes he's Son, sometimes he's Holy Spirit. He's not morphing and changing or transforming into different beings over time. He has eternally existed this way. And when you read through the entirety of the Bible, this beautiful doctrine becomes clear. So let's look at a few of those passages. Now, I don't have time to go through every single passage that, that helps explain this, but I'm going to go through some of the major ones. So Deuteronomy 6.4, this is like one of the biggest verses in Judaism. They say, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's a foundational uh, teaching for them because it clearly says God is one. This is why they are a mono. This is why we are a monotheistic religion. Why I said God is one. There is one God, not many gods. Now, what's interesting about this verse is that the Hebrew language has two words that mean one. Okay, there's the word Yahid, which is uh, the word for one and only one. It's a mathematical singularity. So I have one, exactly one Bible right here, right now. Now, there's another Hebrew word, ahad. Now, that Hebrew word, which is the one used here, is the word for a composite oneness. It's a group made up of multiple things, but you can consider it as a whole, right? It's also used in Genesis when it describes the first marriage. So when you have Adam and Eve, the man and the woman who become one flesh, the, the two become one while still remaining two. There's to their individuality They've added a composite oneness, right? When you get married, you still remain who you are, but there's a new entity that has been established. And you can say, they, we, are, we are one. You've probably even described your own marriage like that. We are one on this. You're not saying we've become the same person, but there's a oneness because something new has been established. You're one yet while also remaining two. That's the word that is being used to describe here that God is one. He's a composite oneness. So while the Old Testament clearly affirms the oneness of God, it deliberately uses a word to define that oneness as a corporate oneness or a plural oneness. Now, as you read further into the New Testament, it brings further clarity that this one essence or being of God contains these three persons. We see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all throughout Scripture all called God. Each one of them possesses the divine attributes. Each one not only deserves but also receives worship. 
and each one of them participates in the divine work together. Look at Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So this is that moment right after the resurrection. Jesus has been around teaching for about 40 days. And just before he ascends to the right hand of the Father, Jesus commissioned his disciples for gospel ministry. He's telling them, you're supposed to go make, mature, and multiply disciples. And as people come to faith, they are to identify with God through baptism. And did you notice how Jesus said it? They were to be baptized into the name. Not the names, but the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's really bad grammar, but it's excellent, good Trinitarian theology. Right? He's highlighting something. There's a oneness there. Let's look at another verse. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through 17. For this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God." Now, packed into that big sentence, Paul loves to write big sentences. He's saying, he's praying for the church in Ephesus, and he prays to God the Father, who is the source of all life and blessing. So he wants them to be blessed. He goes right to the Father. Why? The Father has all life and blessing to give out, and it's his joy to give it out. And he asks that the Father would strengthen the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what the the Spirit does. He, He empowers and strengthens us. He also prays that through faith, Christ would dwell in their hearts, which means that they would abide in Christ, that the focus and attention would be on the relationship with Jesus. And he says that when that happens, believers will be rooted and grounded, anchored in love, and that they'll be filled with the fullness of God. What a powerful and beautiful prayer to the Father through Christ the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. This verse highlights how God works. See, when God moves and works, Every person in the Trinity uniquely fulfills their role. They're unified in their purpose and their work together so that when God works, every member of the Trinity fulfills their role. Generally speaking, the Father is the divine architect. He's planning, providing, and overseeing the work. The Son is the mediator. He's the one who draws near to act and to accomplish that work. And the Spirit, this wonderful counselor, is the one who applies, affirms, and empowers. But no matter their role, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit work together to accomplish all that they intend. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 14. As Paul is finishing up his letter, he says, I pray that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit would be with you all. I'm just merely skimming the surface. We could spend all day and night on this. Throughout the New Testament, you will see that each person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is fully God. And their community is held together perfectly with unity, equality, and distinction. 
So how is it that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are personally distinct, yet essentially one? That remains a mystery. It's even beyond our ability to explain fully. But let me say this. Just because we can't fully comprehend it doesn't mean it's true. There's lots of things I can't fully comprehend. I saw a statistics equation the other day. Made no sense to me. I was like, why is there a sigma in there? Right? Now, somebody understands that, but just because I can't understand it doesn't mean I look at that equation and say it's not true, right? There's lots I don't understand. Most of your jobs, I have no idea how you do what you do. Incomprehensible does not equal illogical, right? It just means it's beyond our ability to figure out. J.I. Packer says it well. Therefore, we find God incomprehensible, by which I mean not that he doesn't make sense, but that it's exceeding our grasp. And yet we should expect that there, there's going to be a mystery about God, right? That we can't fully figure out. See, a God you can completely figure out is likely a God of your own imagination, right? So when Christians say, I believe in God, this is what we mean. Now, this is not theological nitpicking. This is not unnecessary abstraction. This is who God is. Is. There's not a more fundamental question than that. See, God as Trinity is not something about him. It is who he is. So the more we know about him, the more we can love him. Earlier I said, the more you know about someone, it increases your capacity to love them. So if the idea of God stays vague, your relationship with him is also going to stay vague. This is so deeply and profoundly important because when you know him truly, you can begin to know him deeply. Knowledge about God is not meant to create stuffy doctrinal correctness. Deep focus and attention will lead to deeper love and relationship. All doctrine is meant to result in devotion. That's where it all is supposed to head. So as you grow in knowledge of who God is, I have been praying that your heart will grow in devotion and worship to him. Because, see, the undefined God stays vague and remains far, and we can keep him at bay. But the particular God, the one you see clearly as revealed in the Bible, will become personal and near. And that, friends, is when you begin to change. Our faith, our devotion, even our ability to change is directly connected to our understanding of who God is. If we remain in the shallows, I'm telling you, our faith will remain shallow as well. And I'm convinced that most of our stagnation in our faith with God is simply a result of our distracted and disinterested pursuit to know him fully. If we committed ourselves to a season of deep focus and attention to God, how would our lives change? I'm banking on, we would, it would be, uh, we would result in a deeper faith, a more rooted faith, and therefore a more life-giving faith in God. So who is God? There are three persons in the one true and living God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. That's who he is. Now what is he like? Psalm 86, 8 through 10, verse 15. The psalmist says, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. 
But you, O Lord, verse 15, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Right off the bat, the psalmist declares that there is no one like the Lord God. And because there's no one like him, there are no works like his. We see that God is great, good, glorious, and gracious. And not only is he great and mighty, he's also merciful, forgiving, and loving. He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The way the creed sums all this up is in that word, almighty. The creed says God is almighty. And it's not simply looking at his strength and his power. It's not simply mighty as if his power were relegated to one domain. He is almighty. Again, I love how the New City Catechism sums up who, what God is like. It says this, God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is eternal, infinite, and unchangeable in his power and perfection goodness and glory, wisdom, justice, truth, and love. Nothing happens except through him and by his will. Jen Wilkin has written a fantastic book called None Like Him, and she uh, uh, summarizes the divine attributes like this. The first one she mentions is he's infinite. He is the God of no limits, I've got some scriptures up here if you're taking notes. These would be great ones to write down and go look up. You could, with the uh, next 11 things we're going to write out, you could have a week's worth of devotional study right there. He is infinite. He's the God of no limits. This means that God is immeasurable, unquantifiable, uncontainable. He's unbound. He is utterly without limit. Second, God is incomprehensible. He is the God of infinite mystery. We covered this earlier, but this means that God is beyond our ability to know fully, but we can still know him truly. Just because we can't exhaust his knowledge doesn't mean that the knowledge we know of him can't be true. See, the human mind is finite, and so therefore it cannot fully comprehend or even express an infinite God. We just lack the ability to do that. Next, God is self-existent. He is the God of infinite creativity. This means that God himself is uncreated. Nothing created him. And therefore, he created everything. Anything that exists, exists because God created it. He doesn't rely on anything else to exist. He's not deriving his, 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 his ability to exist from anything else like we are. Our very breath, the fact that our molecules don't just fall down completely and apart is because God is holding us all together. He is without origin. He is the source of all life, and he is utterly independent. Next, God is self-sufficient. He is the God of infinite provision. This means he is not only needed by all, everything that exists needs him, but he's needful of nothing. He is self-sufficient. None of us in this room are self-sufficient. We need each other to even exist, right? This means that because he needs nothing outside himself, he cannot be controlled, he cannot be coerced, he cannot be manipulated, blackmailed. There's no one who possesses something that he lacks. Everything we need, he has, and he delights to give. God is also eternal. He is the God of infinite days. God is simultaneously the God of the past, the present, and the future, bending time to his perfect will. He's unfettered by its constraints. It's one of his creations. 
The past holds for him no missed opportunities. He's never going, man, I wish I could go back and fix that. Never. The present holds for him no anxiety. He's never wondering what's going to happen. He's never unsure. The future holds for him no uncertainty. He's never going, I wonder how this is going to play out, ever. He was and is and is to come. He's unbound and unlimited by time because time is his own invention. He is free to act in time as he wills because he exists outside of time. He's immutable, which means he's the same. He doesn't change. He is the God of infinite sameness. God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. None of his attributes diminish or increase because he's infinite. He never grows weary. He doesn't go back on his promises. He is the foundation that you can build your life on. God is omnipresent. He's the God of infinite place. He is present everywhere and at every time, past, present, and future. And he is present everywhere and at every time. He is fully present. There's no place where God is not. He is unbound and unlimited by a body. He is uncontainable. He is limitlessly present. Where can you go from him? Nowhere. He is everywhere. He's omniscient. He's the God of infinite knowledge. He's limitless in his knowledge, which means he knows everything. What was, what is, what will be. He even knows the counterfactuals of what could have been. There's no scenario he doesn't know. He's omnipotent. He is the God of infinite power. He has all power, never grows weary. He is able to do all that pleases him. He cannot do what's contrary to his nature. He cannot act unloving or unjust or inconsistent. He's perfectly moral, but his limitless power means that he is in control and nothing gets in the way or overpowers him. There's no external limit on his ability to act. The Psalms say he does all that pleases him. And everything that he does is perfectly consistent with his moral character. He's sovereign. He is the God of infinite rule. There are no limits on his authority to act. Not only is he capable of ruling over all, he's actually the only one qualified to do so. Jen Wilkins says in her book, Every attribute we have considered thus far has been moving us toward this inevitable conclusion. The most right and logical place for God to inhabit is a throne, right? If he's perfectly good, if he's perfectly uh, able to do all and to see all and to be all, then we want him at the top. As the one who creates and sustains everything, he's in the best position to lovingly and rightly dictate how everything should go. His design is perfect. His purposes are perfect. And therefore, he sets the agenda. And his commands, when followed, always lead to our flourishing and thriving. And last, God is omnibenevolent, which means he's the God of infinite goodness. He's limitless in his goodness and moral perfection. He's actually the definition of holiness, righteousness, and justice Every thought, every motive, every action, everything about him is pure, perfect, and good. That's why we can say with the psalmist, truly, there is no one like him. No one. And with all that power and all that might, we might be tempted to fear him in terror, right? A God of that awesomeness might cause us to run away. 
But the scriptures actually invite us into a kind of fearing him that is, 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 is built around respect and reverence and love. When we consider who he is, it's meant to draw us to him, not away from him. God is almighty, which means he's not sporadic, he's not unpredictable or limited. He is limitless in his goodness, which means his power is meant not to crush us, but he uses his power to build us up and to lift us up. He does not waver or go back on his promises. We are not like him. We, we get thrown and tossed around by circumstances and people. We are inconsistent and we are often unreliable, but not God. He is almighty. He is unchangeable and therefore he is totally reliable. He's committed himself to us by the word of his promise, which means he can never go back on it. Psalm 105 verse 8 says, he remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. So when God is good, great, glorious, and gracious, it means he's never going to change. There's no one like him. What is God like? He is almighty in every sense of the word. That's what he's like. Now what can we expect? Now I've saved this word father for the end as we turn our focus on the first person of the Trinity, God the Father. Now right off the bat, this word father takes away the notion of God being some impersonal being or some abstract force. See, in love, God has revealed himself so that we don't have to guess. And in love to us, he uses language and analogies that we can understand. See, analogies are memorable and they give us a, a picture. Right away, when I say the word father, there's an image that comes to mind. Not good or bad, but there, there's already something that has come into your mind. See, analogies take something we do understand to give us a reference point. Now, the most common and the primary analogy that the first person of the Trinity uses to reveal himself to us is Father. So before he's judge, before he's ruler, even before creator, God is the Father. Now, he is all of those things. He is judge, he is ruler, he is creator, he is sustainer, all those things. But above all these and before all these, God is Father. Think about this. Before creation, before there was anything to be creator of, before there was anything to rule, before there was anything to judge, who was he? Right? He's eternally existed. Who was he before all of those things? What was he before all that? What has he always been? A father. Why do we know that? Scripture tells us. Jesus tells us explicitly in John 17, verse 24. Jesus says, Father, you loved me, second person of the Trinity, Jesus, before the creation of the world. We get this glimpse in this moment of this Father, Son, and Spirit existence before there was anything else. He's always been fundamentally a father. Michael Reeves in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, says before he ever created, before he ever ruled the world, before anything else, this God was a father loving his son. And if God is a father, then he must be relational, life-giving, and that is the sort of God that we could love. He goes on to say, and just as a fountain to be a fountain must pour forth water, so the father to be a father must give out life. That's who he is. That is his most fundamental identity. Thus, love is not something the father has, merely one of his many moods. Rather, he is love. He could not not love. 
In fact, if he did not love, he would not be a father. All of life and love flow from the father. And because he loves, what does that make you and me? Beloved, right? We're the object of his love. Now, at some point, all analogies break down. But to the extent that the analogy provides understanding, it's helpful. So there are ways in which God is like a father, a human father, and there's other ways where he's not. There's points of similarity and points of dissimilarity. So, for example, a good father would care for his children and provide for them, right? And just like children resemble their fathers, so God's children resemble their heavenly father because they're made in the image of God. Fathers have a right and a responsibility to exercise good authority over their children so that they can flourish. And likewise, God the Father has a right and a responsibility to exercise his good authority over us as his children so that we can flourish. But unlike earthly fathers, God the Father never loses his patience. He never fails to provide and care for his children. He's not negligent. He's not absent. He's not abusive. God the Father is not limited by shortcomings and sin. Now, it doesn't take much to know that in a room this size that there are father wounds around. Knowing a lot of your stories, I know they're here. It's in my story as well. Father wounds can make hearing even the phrase God the Father hard to hear. So, for example, if your father sinned against you in either abusive or even absent ways, Perhaps you need some time just to simply grieve those wounds and to process those in community. And my hope is that despite our father wounds, that we would be able to know God as a father and that knowing God as a father would actually be a pathway and a relationship of healing. See, with God as our father, we can start to experience paternal love the way it was meant to be, the way it was supposed to be. So so we've seen how God is fundamentally a father and how he's eternally a father to God the Son. But how is he a father to you and me? See, in one sense, generically, he's a father to all because he's the source of life, the creator and the sustainer of everything, right? He's the father of all. In Acts 17, 28, Paul makes the point in his sermon when he says that we are his offspring, right? That all humanity uh, owes its existence to God the Father. What Paul's getting at the fact is that everything, including humanity, depends on God for their very existence and sustenance. But the creed wants us to go a little bit deeper this morning in a more personal sense of God as our adopted Father. Now before you can appreciate your adoption, you have to understand and come to terms with the stark reality that we are all orphans, right? To be adopted means that you're an orphan. The Bible says that because of our sin, we're no longer children of God, that we've actually become children of wrath, sons and daughters of disobedience. The Bible says that we are orphans in need of adoption. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead and the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
Now, these verses run completely against the grain of everything our culture tells us. If you uh, 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 watch midday uh, self-help programs, pick up a book at the store, they're going to tell you, no, 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 no. You are inherently good. Salvation is found by looking inside, finding the good inside of you, cultivating that so that it comes outside of you. They say, listen, get yourself together, work hard, and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And when you get knocked down, don't quit, just get back up. And man, that sounds good on the surface until you actually try it, right? Have you ever tried that? If you do, you know it's a lie. You can't be good on your own. You've tried going from good to great and you failed time and time again. It reminds me of what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once said. He said, It's all right to tell a man to lift himself up by his own bootstraps, but it is a cruel jest to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself up by his own bootstraps. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying we can't lift ourselves up by our own bootstraps because we're bootless. We aren't inherently good because we're inherently dead. We live out the passions of our flesh and we are by nature children of wrath. We are orphans in the orphanage of disobedience. And it is a cruel jest to say to a bunch of bootless orphans, hey, just lift yourself up by your own bootstraps. Fortunately, the Bible doesn't traffic in cruel jests, but declares to us the good news of the gospel. John's gospel, chapter one, verse 12 and 13 says this. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What John is saying is that all who receive Christ, all who believe in his name, become children of God. Now, this doesn't happen by birthright. You can't be born into it. It doesn't happen by pedigree. It doesn't happen by earning human effort or will. It happens because God himself walks into the orphanage and adopts you. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 14 and 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Adoption in the Bible is one of the great gospel metaphors. Now, Paul is borrowing from the Roman concept of adoption, which is a little bit different than it is today. So today, most adoptions happen when we adopt uh, young children or infants. But in the Roman world, a man had to pass on his wealth to a son. And if a man found that he had no sons, or even if he felt that they were incapable or unworthy to carry on his legacy and his name, he would adopt someone that he thought would make a worthy son. So a lot of times there would be older boys and even older men who were adopted to carry on the father's name. And when that adoption was legally approved, the adoptee would have all of his debts canceled. He would receive a new name and literally a new family and identity. He would become the legal son of the adopted father, entitled to all the rights, all the benefits, and all of the inheritances like he was a biological son. This adoptee would be freely chosen 
and desired. And he would become a part of the family forever. In fact, once the adoption was done, legally they could never go back on it. But Paul says, for all those who are in Christ, you are no longer slaves, no longer gripped by fear. Jesus has paid the adoption price by his blood, and therefore all your debts are paid. So what can you expect from the Father? For all his adopted sons and daughters, you can expect infinite love and enduring approval. That's what is yours in Christ. The Father has given you his name. He has paid all of your debts and you are now entitled as an heir to all the rights and benefits and inheritances alongside your big brother Jesus. Adoption is a legal change of status. You're no longer slaves, but you are sons and daughters of God. The father saw you, freely chose you, and you are now a permanent part of God's family See, before God adopted you, you were helpless, you were estranged, but now because of Christ, you are near and loved. He is our father because he looks at us and says, you are my son and you are my daughter. We don't have to grovel for approval. You don't have to overwork for his applause. You have enduring and lasting approval. Because of the finished work of Christ, our adoption is something we receive as a gift. So now as we close, I want to ask a few questions that hopefully you'll think through this week to drive it deeper. See, we can't settle for shallow work here. We can't go, man, that's good news and just walk out of here. Knowing God and applying it to our lives is the deepest and most important work you will ever do. So I've got two questions for you. The first is this, where do you look for approval? And how would your life change if you received the Father's approval instead of looking elsewhere. J.I. Packer says this, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he doesn't understand Christianity very well at all. If, if, if someone asks you about your faith, you say, well, I'm really trying hard. I'm trying to work at it. It says you don't understand it. You're, you're, you're primarily thinking about God as a ruler and the rules you have to keep and the work you've got to accomplish instead of seeing God as your father, fully loved, totally accepted. See, everyone looks for approval to know that they're valued and loved. In Christ, though you might feel rejected, you are actually approved. Though you might feel unloved, guess what? You are infinitely cherished. See, if you look anywhere else for approval, you will work yourself to death to earn it, and you'll be terrified to ever lose it. But if your approval is settled in the unchanging word of God himself, then you are finally free to live the life that he's given you without the burden weighing you down to try to earn it or the fear, paralyzing fear of ever losing it. And when that happens, your life will be marked by a humble confidence. Humbled because you know that you don't deserve it, even though you are fully and finally approved, but confident because you know that God has proved his love for you by giving and sending his son. So are you walking in that kind of humble confidence that only comes with being fully and truly accepted and loved by God? Second question, what keeps you from getting undistracted, focused time with God through prayer and reading his word? 
See, the natural response to receiving infinite love and enduring approval from God is gratitude and a desire to know him more. Every relationship that has ever mattered to you left the shallows and entered the deep. In fact, relationships have to grow and deepen or eventually they fade away. It takes intentionality and planning. You can't just do it when you feel like it. You've got to plan it, guard it, and fight for it. And eventually it will become a habit. And the fruit that is cultivated in that time, it will start to produce in you excitement and encouragement to keep going on. I've been praying for you this week that we would be a people marked by God's word and prayer, a people who deeply know the Lord and are walking in humble confidence as his children.